Well, good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright, and it's my pleasure this morning to introduce our guest speaker, Daniel Dorman. Daniel is a worship leader and folk musician slash songwriter. He's put out a couple albums. He is a brilliant songwriter, and uh, not only his own songs, but also the way he uh, redoes hymns, historic hymns, I think is remarkable. Uh, DanielDorman.com, if you're interested in hearing some of his music. Um, he is originally from Kitchener, but went to Toronto for his undergraduate education, did a BA in Biblical Studies in Theology and English at Tyndale University, and then went on to do a Master's in English at the University of Ottawa. And since graduating, he has worked for the past year in the political world for a member of Parliament. Daniel is passionate about the intersection of faith and public policy, and the need for Christians to wisely engage culture and politics. He is married to Fiona, and they recently moved to Guelph, and we've been blessed already at Courtright by their musical gifts in worship leadership. Uh, Daniel is also my nephew, but are you my nephew or my nephew-in-law? Because Daniel married Fiona, I mentioned that. Fiona is the daughter of Judith's oldest sister, Robin. So. Some of you are really good at, at that kind of thing. I, I think, I think like you're a full, legit nephew. Or nep oh, someone's saying nephew-in-law. Anyway, this is something that we can talk about in the parking lot. <laughs> Clearly, we'll need to. So we're really glad you're here today, Daniel. And if you want to come up, I will pray for you. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for Daniel and for the gifts you've given him, uh, both music and the gift of listening to your word, the gift of reading and understanding. I, I pray that you would, through the words that you've already given him and the words that he will yet say that will come to mind for him this morning, that you would communicate the grace and truth of the gospel to us and draw us deeper into a relationship with Christ this morning. And so I, I bless him. I pray that you would be with him as he preaches this morning in Jesus' name. One. Oh, yeah. There we go. I figured it out. Uh, well, well, good morning. That was nice. I didn't expect that. That was awesome. Um, I'm going to get this thing turned on. It's really a pleasure to be here this morning, to be in a room with people, even if we're a little spread out and wearing masks. Um, and it's a pleasure to worship together as well, thanks to Justin and the team. There we go. All righty. Let's, uh, let's look into God's Word together. The book of Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 47, just a few verses. So if you want to flip or tap or click there, please do. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. 
So the parable that we get to look into this morning is not necessarily what I initially associate with the word parable, right? I don't know if it's a, a learned Sunday school prejudice or a, uh, a willful blindness, perhaps, but that when I think of the word parable, I tend to think of um, parables that depict God's grace, that when they depict the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, they depict, um, they depict it as a treasure as a pearl, or they depict God as, as the prudent master or the loving father. But as I was preparing for today, reading through the teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew, what I discovered was that our parable today, our parable depicting God's holiness and the certainty of his judgment, um, rather than being the outlier, is prevalent. And that what we have in our three-verse parable in that, this explanation of God's judgment, his discernment and separation of the righteous and the unrighteous, is a concise version of a theme that actually runs through the whole book of Matthew. Even within our chapter, it's actually, depending on how you look at it, the second or third parable that focuses on these same themes. The parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds do the same. Um, and then ultimately in the book of Matthew, uh, in chapter 25, we have the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is sort of the most fleshed out version of, of what we actually have in just three verses in our passage today. So all that's to say that this is not peripheral to the gospel of Matthew, that it's, it's central. And if we expand even further, if we go further out than the book of Matthew, we find that this theme of the separation of the righteous and the unrighteous is not something that is only in Matthew, but is something that is explicit and and prevalent throughout Scripture. If you look at the first pages of Genesis, uh, just after the fall, you see the stories of Cain and Abel, or eventually Cain and Seth. But, but the themes that run through the early narratives of Genesis is these almost what you could call a literary foil of the brothers, the, the righteous brother and the unrighteous brother, and the ways that those interact, but certainly the same thing. Or uh, as we look into the book of Psalms, we, we see that similar theme throughout. A couple of recent, actually quite good biblical scholars have pointed out that while the book of Psalms are is a collection of, of prayers, a collection of, of hymns and songs for the people of Israel and, and ultimately for, for the church as well. It's also edited in such a way that it, it forms a narrative. Um, and if you look at the first two chapters, the first two psalms, they, they function to introduce the themes which the rest of the psalms will bring back in refrain. And Psalm 1 reads this way, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. For, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So throughout scripture, we see the clear and uncompromising judgment of a holy God in the separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. 
And I'm repeating this point even, uh, maybe, maybe overly repeating this point, because I, I want us to avoid a trap. I want us to avoid the subtle mental trap of, of taking a passage like the passage we have this morning and thinking of it as supplementary, thinking of it as peripheral, thinking of it as peripheral to the book of Matthew or to the gospel or to scripture. Because I think, make no mistake, the holiness of God's judgment is hard to reckon with. And when we too often love darkness, the light of God's holiness can be uncomfortable. So if we can convince ourselves that this passage is the outlier, is peripheral, and that we don't need to wrestle with it, then we probably won't. We probably won't. And so without going into too much detail even, I will say that I, I do fear that there are some Christians or even some Christian churches that explicitly adopt a view of Scripture that allows them to focus on the parts that they're comfortable with. And that I think that that is a road that, that misses out on so much beauty of who God is and what he has for us. So let's pray together. God, help us. Again, we ask for your presence. As we wrestle with this passage, may we glimpse your holiness, may we understand your grace, and may we be inspired to obedience and faith. Let us behold these wondrous things out of your word. Amen. So because it's, it's a short passage, just three verses, I think what I'll do is I'll actually read it a few times throughout, so I'm going to just read it again now. Keep it fresh in our minds as we dig in. So chapter, Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so as we approach a passage like this, I think if we're honest, it's possible or maybe likely that part of us is kind of offended by God. Maybe not consciously, maybe we'd never say that to each other, um, but implicitly, subtly. To our, our very Canadian sensibilities, this God seems severe and unaccepting, maybe uncaring or flippant towards people. Maybe we're offended by God's discrimination. And I use the word discrimination intentionally because if you look at the history of the word discrimination, there's actually two distinct definitions. Um, the first is the one that I think we associate more readily as, as 21st century Canadians. We think of discrimination as something which is prejudicial and fundamentally immoral. We think of it as, as purely wrong. And it is good that we are against that type of discrimination. The second type of discrimination is simply the capacity to distinguish one thing from another. 
right? Simply the, the, the capacity to categorize. And I think as, as Canadians, because we're so set, rightly set, against prejudicial discrimination, we almost start to go against non-prejudicial discrimination or, or discrimination as merely categorization. And I won't go too far down that track, um, but I do think it's, it's a worthwhile point to think about. And so maybe in our discomfort with this passage, maybe we even harbor the belief that this God of judgment isn't really compatible with the God we'd like to believe in. Maybe we, we have a file somewhere in the back of our mind label, labeled awkward passages in Matthew between Sermon on the Mount and Great Commission, avoid when possible. Maybe we are even afraid that if we look too much in these passages that are hard to swallow, we'll lose our faith. We fear that ultimately we won't actually like the God of Scripture. That if we look into him too much, we'll lose our faith. Maybe we've had a hero somewhere in our lives that we've loved and respected, and at some point they let us down. And we're worried that if we look too deep into God, the same will happen. And I think part of us, as we read this passage, asks this. It asks, what gives God the right to act this way? What gives God the right to judge? So what I hope we realize this morning is that the part of us that asks these questions, the part of us that fears to look into these more difficult passages, the part of us that questions the right of God to judge, to reign, is the part of us that has not begun to comprehend the reality of who God is and the reality of his holiness, his purity, his goodness, his otherness, his glory. And I will say that this, this questioning, this maybe almost often hidden questioning inside our hearts is not something unique to us, but, I, but is a perennial part of, of the, the human condition, the fallen human condition in religious experience. When we encounter God, when people encounter God throughout history, I think they often feel this way to some degree. If you look at one of the, the greatest poems ever written in the English language, John Milton's Paradise Lost, you'll see that Milton claims that he writes his epic poem to justify the ways of God to men to pull back the curtain, to allow us to see the justification behind God's action in the world, his plan to redeem and his plan to judge. And similarly, and, and more importantly, many of the Psalms seem to be written either to someone questioning the right of God to reign, or by someone who has been questioning the right of God to reign and to judge. And so I want us to look into a few examples of those psalms this morning. The first example is Psalm 97, verse 1 and 2. I think it'll, yeah, look at that. Amazing. Thanks. Um, it reads this way. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. In other words, God has the right to reign, the right to judge, because of who he is. And this psalm actually offers us, in just those two verses, it offers us two reasons to accept God as Lord, to recognize the rightness of his reign, the rightness of his judgments. The first is his righteousness, his justice, his moral perfection. The second, I would say, is his holiness, his incomprehensible holiness. If at any point you're reading through the Psalms or other parts of Scripture and, and you see a cloud of thick darkness, that, that's the, the author of Scripture uh, using a symbol to depict the glory of God, to depict the incomprehensible holiness of God, the majesty of God which we in our humanness cannot comprehend. So the first reason, his righteousness. The second reason, his holiness. And if we turn to another psalm, just a couple psalms before, Psalm 97, Psalm 94, starting in verse 8. This one, it's a little blunt. It's written uh, to someone questioning God's holiness in a way. Anyway, starting in verse 8, it, it says this, Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. So reason one, his righteousness. Reason two, his holiness. Reason three, I would say, is his omniscience. His status as all-knowing creator as the one who made you and formed you for his own purpose. And so if I were to summarize these points in the fancy theological language that I learned at my time at Tyndale, my formal biblical training, I would say three things. I would say God is better than you, God knows better than you, and God is bigger than you. God is better than you, God knows better than you, and God is bigger than you. There was a, uh, a great writer of the 20th century named A.W. Tozer. He said this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. A while ago I was on Instagram, which is not something that, you know, normally comes up on a Sunday morning. But nonetheless, I was scrolling through, and a friend of mine had posted a quote, and it just said this, if we understand who God is, we would not question his ways. If we understand who God is in his holiness and perfection, we would trust him, even when that's hard. 
we understand who God is in his holiness and perfection, we would, we would trust him even when we feel that he's wrong about something. Even when we feel that he's really wrong about something. And I think our era, our, our age needs to hear this in particular. Your feelings are fallible. Your feelings are informed by your own sin and by the sin of the world around you. And they're often wrong. God is not fallible. If your feelings and God conflict about something, trust God. Trust God to reform your feelings. Because he is better than you, he knows better than you, and he's bigger than you. Because the danger is that you'll try, instead of asking God to reform your heart, you'll ask God to reform to your standard. You'll impose your vision of goodness upon God himself. And you are subject and he is object. You are a breath and he is a law written in stone. It's not a battle you're going to win. Fiona, could you grab me my water bottle? Thank you. Fiona, everybody. <laughs> Much needed comedy relief, perhaps. I think what I hope each of us will ask ourselves this morning is what God are we walking with? Have we made God smaller and more palatable so that he fits more easily into our plans? Have we made God into someone who can be bargained with for a sin we enjoy or a sin we don't want to repent of? Have we made God into someone who can be bargained with for the way we spend our money or our time or the things we watch? Have we have we who have maybe been around church for more of our lives than not, have we mistaken God's grace for a compromise in his holiness? Have we made the mistake that those that Paul addresses in Romans made in seeing grace as an excuse to be complacent? God has the right to judge because of who he is. And before we move on from that point, I just want to say that there's a secondary truth in that statement, a sort of secondary or implied truth, and that if God's judgment is justified by his holiness and his righteousness and his omniscient, then your judgment of others is plainly unjustifiable. Right? Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And I just wanted to, to put that in there because I don't want us to make the mistake of delving into God's judgment and mistaking that for something that we should do. <laughs> don't, make, don't mistake God's judgment as an excuse to act judgmentally.
Let's read through our passage again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think as we recognize that God's judgment is completely justified, our attitude towards this passage can shift radically. Instead of our Canadian discomfort with the severity and finality of God's judgment in the world, we will see it as the inevitable result of the interaction between a perfectly righteous God and a sinful world. Instead of discomfort, we can rejoice. We can rejoice as the psalmist of Psalm 97 says, rejoice. We can rejoice knowing that perfect justice is coming. That perfect justice is coming to the world and that evil is coming to an end. And that's good news. In this world that is awash with subjectivity and uncertainty, we can rest in the objectivity of God's judgment, the certainty of God's judgment, as a firm foundation for our lives and for our hope. We can rest in His judgment. And if resting in God's judgment sounds a little crazy to you, if the thought of standing before a perfect and holy judge offers you not rest, but restlessness, you may need to better understand what Jesus came to do for you on the cross. As we sang, he came and he died and his blood was shed for every moment. You may need to, to better understand. You may need to just revisit and remember throughout this week, each day, that he died for you, that he lived perfectly for you, that he offers you his righteousness, that you can come into God's presence, that you can come to be judged by God, not on what you have done, but based on the perfect life of Jesus Christ. You can come clothed in his protection, his perfection, sorry, and his protection. You can come, as again we sang, with Christ all around you. We can rest in God's judgment. final thing that I, I want us to see in this passage is what, as I was wrestling with this this week, I came to understand as a part of Jesus' plea for us to come to him. And I, I want to talk about the intense language, intense language that Jesus uses to describe what we understand to be hell. Verse 
It's in our passage. But I want to do so recognizing the immediate context of Matthew 13. And as I already mentioned, by the time we reach our three-verse parable here, we've had two similar, in some ways, parables in the chapter already, the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, two parables of God's holiness and God's judgment. And at the end of both of those parables, he ends it with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I want us to keep the context in mind that Jesus is telling these parables of judgment as a call to those willing to listen, a call to realize his holiness, to realize their sin, to repent, and to believe. And so I think that the intensity of the language that Jesus uses to describe hell, the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, ought to be understood as a part of that plea. I think that it's poetic language, I think it's symbolic language, I think it's meant to wake us up. I think Jesus is pleading with us to see in our minds the reality of what life without God could be like. And so with that, let us remember that the context of his proclamation of judgment is firmly within his love for those listening and his desire for all of them to turn to him. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And this passage does nothing to undo that. This passage, I think, reflects his desire. The very language he uses to teach reflects his desire for all to come to him, for all to be saved. I think it reflects his desire for us to choose the rich reward of his love over the pain of rejecting the God we were made to know. I think the language Jesus uses ought to be understood as his plea for us to choose the rich reward of his love over rejecting, over the pain of rejecting the God we were made to know. Let's pray together. God, would you move in our hearts? Whether we have known you for a long time or whether we haven't, would you help us to choose you? Would you give us a vision of the treasure that your kingdom offers us and a desire to run from the pain of losing you? Would you help us not to tame down your holiness? Would you help us not to attempt to reform you to our weak and fallible thoughts of good? But when, when things are uncertain, would we trust you? Would you impress upon us this week your righteousness your holiness, 
and your omniscience? Would you remind us of the simple fact that you are better than us, that you know better than us, and that you're bigger than us, and that we can trust you? Would you help us to seek you for rest? Would we not run from restlessness, but we, may we be inspired by restlessness to seek you in repentance and faith? May we not run from passages of scripture that make us initially uncomfortable and miss out on so much of who you are. Send us your spirit, cover us with your mercy. In Jesus' holy name, amen.